Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of The Bible Breakdown. Very excited to be jumping back into the scripture with you today. We are also, we're going back with our favorite Old Testament daytime soap opera star, Saul. His life really is kind of like a a daytime soap because he's really handsome and the things that he does are ridiculous. So I think it's a, a perfect analogy. So the last couple of weeks, he's been more like the bold and the beautiful, okay? He's handsome, and he's making some good choices. We've been seeing some good Saul, but this week, he's going to be more like the young and the restless. Saul is going to battle some impatience, some trust issues with the Lord. He's going to promote a false sense of religiosity and spirituality instead of being obedient. We're going to see bad Saul this week. We hardly had any time to enjoy good Saul. Good Saul like just shows up on a blip last time. And that's what happened last time. The good Saul uh, listened to the Lord and he and he rallies the Israelites and they go and save the people of the city of Jabesh from the Ammonites win a very decisive victory. Uh, the Lord is with them. Uh, however, we're going to see a little bit of a turn this week. So we are in 1 Samuel, starting in chapter 13. We'll be going through 15. We'll be skipping around a bit because it's a pretty dense text, a lot going on, and we only have 30 minutes. So beginning of chapter 13, this is kind of the scene we're going to f- find ourselves in. The Israelites, led by Saul and his son Jonathan, have won some victories against the Philistines. Okay. However, this has drawn the full attention of the Philistines, and they have now marshaled a huge force against the Israelites, and the, many of the Israelites have begun to scatter. Okay, so this army of 330,000 strong that they had at Jabesh is nowhere to be found. They have scattered in several different directions, some including very surprising. We're going to talk about that a little later. But that is where we are when we pick up then in verse 8. In First Samuel chapter 13, sorry, in verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. He is referring to Saul, in case you're wondering. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Okay, so as they are dealing with this scary Philistine army, uh, Saul's ready to to get going and get the the Lord on his side. That's honestly how Saul kind of thinks of this as we look through his narrative. He's eager to get this uh, sacrifice done so that God will give him a victory, okay? Samuel's running a little late, all right? Remember, Samuel's getting old. You know, maybe he overestimated how fast he could go, though what we really see is he probably just arrived later on the same day that he said he was going to be there or maybe the day after at latest. So Samuel's not really all that late. But Saul is getting really nervous, Okay, he wants Samuel to be there. He wants to do the burnt offering so that, you know, I really think in his mind, so that he and his army are safe from the Philistines. Okay, so instead of waiting a little longer to see if Samuel shows up, he decides that he is going to do the burnt offering himself. That is a huge no-no for anyone but the priest. This was not 
the king's role. So Saul, in doing that, has presumed the role of the priest, an office he has not been called to by God, and a huge act of disobedience. And really, that comes out of impatience and a desire to have his way, right? He doesn't want to wait on Samuel. He wants to make sure that they're taken care of. All right, so Samuel shows up, and he's Saul. What have you done? And he tells him, here's my reasoning. The Philistines were coming. You didn't show up. So I, and he says, I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. He's basically making it sound like I had no other choice. Okay. So this is Samuel's reaction in verse 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord, your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Okay, this error, like I said, this is no joke. Huge no-no. Samuel tells Saul that this mistake is going to cost him the throne. That he, had he been obedient to the Lord, that the Lord would have continued to establish him. However, because of this mistake, and we're going to see that he's going to make several more after this. But because of this, he says, God recognizes you're not the guy. You are not the guy to be the king over my people. Instead, the king is going to be someone God wants to be after his own heart. Okay, that may be a phrase you're familiar with. Describe someone in particular in actually a very a very short order here in 1 Samuel. No spoilers. But that's what Samuel tells Saul that God's looking for. He's looking for a person that's after his own heart, not somebody who's going to presumptuously make sacrifices and try to make his own way. Because again, that's really what Saul was doing. He's trying to make his own way. So after receiving this really difficult news, Samuel leaves. Saul goes up to meet the army. Um, we learn at the end of chapter 13 that the Philistines are continuing to kind of move toward um, the Israelites. They're on the move. We're also told that the Israelites pretty much have no weapons. The Philistines apparently had kind of rounded up a lot of the blacksmiths in Israel. And the people of Israel, even for their like farm equipment, had to go to the Philistines to get their stuff sharpened. And so this kept Israel from making weapons. So it makes you think about last week with the people of Jabesh and they've got that huge army. Is it just a bunch of farmers with like pitchforks and sides or whatever, whatever they were using, like they breaking off the yoke on the oxen and using it as a club. I don't, I don't know what in the world they were using, but it probably wasn't swords and spears. If this is any indication of what was also going on at that time, they were going up against Jabesh. So they do have two swords though in Israel. One is Saul's. And then one belongs to another young man named Jonathan, his son. Okay, Jonathan is going to be a nice little foil for us, for Saul. Foil being a character who um, really shines a light on the main character's character qualities. In this case, I would say Saul's flaws. Jonathan's going to be a foil that really shows more clearly the flaws in Saul because of his good character. Okay. So they've kind of, Saul's kind of set up this little mini court outside this area. Um, 
in the outskirts of Gibeah, it says, and the the Philistines are nearby. The Israelites are kind of biding their time a little bit. They're in trouble from a standpoint of numbers. The Philistines have tons of guys. The Israelites, not many. A lot of them are scattering, all that. But Jonathan is there, and Jonathan's a good dude. So in chapter 14, 1 Samuel, starting in verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Okay, so Jonathan is ready to make something happen. And he kind of goes with this attitude of, let's see if this is something the Lord is calling us to. And if that is the case, there's nothing that can hinder the Lord from saving. So he's basically like, even though it's just us two, if this is what the Lord wants, he's going to make a victory for us. Okay, so he wants to go up and harry the Philistines. They've kind of posted up in this strategic position. Um, he brings his armor bearer. Uh, we're going to find out that this group is at least about 20 guys. Okay, so it's Jonathan and his armor bearer against 20 people. And so those are pretty steep odds. Pretty steep odds, two against 20, 10 against one if you work it down. But Jonathan trusts God. So he goes through this thing with his armor bearer. He's like, well, if this happens, then that'll be a sign that the Lord's calling us to do this. If this happens, we'll do this. And basically, he he doesn't try to make it as easy as possible on them. He actually kind of makes it as challenging as possible because what's going to happen is the option is they're going to have to scale a cliff. So down in verse 12, still in chapter 14, and the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. That's quite a sentence there at the end. So they go and the option that ends up presenting itself is the one where Jonathan and his armor bearer climb a cliff before then going to attack this group of Philistines, okay? And so they go and they give them all they can handle. They take down 20 guys. And I said it was at least 20 guys. It, it makes it sound because it says that it was like a, a first strike that 20 men were killed. So there are probably more than that. So Jonathan and his armor bearer go and prove that the Lord was with them. Really, that's, I think, more what that's about. Maybe Jonathan had some incredible uh, combat prowess, but more, this is a story about how Jonathan's trusting God and God was with Jonathan, okay? And so the sight of what happened, as uh, chapter 14 continues, the sight of this actually caused the whole Philistine camp to go into disarray because they scared. Perhaps they realize God is with the Israelites that day and that their gods are not. You, if We didn't have a Bible breakdown on it, but there is this story back a few chapters ago where they capture the Ark of the Covenant and then like the people start getting these boils and their God keeps like falling down on its face and then it eventually gets smashed and just like overnight. And so they, they've experienced the power of Yahweh before. And so maybe they're realizing, oh, oh. This is one of those days where they're being obedient and we are going to be in some big trouble. So the Philistines, they start to panic. Okay, now back over to 
the young and the restless, Mr. Saul, he now sees that the Philistines are starting to panic. So he didn't know that Jonathan and his armor bearer had gone up. And he, all he sees is kind of the result of what has happened. And he recognizes that the Philistines are in disarray. And so he sees it. Oh, this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity to get my forces together and go and get the jump on them while they are in disarray. Now, something that the Israelites were supposed to do before military action there was actually a pretty specific prescription on what they were supposed to do. We see it in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 2 through 4. It says, And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people, and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. So it seems like there was this kind of ritual that they would do before going into battle. It was a way of submitting before the Lord and recognizing that he was the one in charge. It was a way of encouraging one another to remember that it's the Lord who's fighting for them and that they don't need to be afraid if the Lord is with them. So this is apparently something that happened before they would take military action. So Saul acts, starting in verse 18, still in verse, or starting verse 18, yeah, still in chapter 14 of 1 Samuel. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Okay, a lot going on here. First, Saul begins the process of what he's supposed to do. He goes to get the priest. It's not Samuel. I'm I'm not 100% sure if this guy, I think we see earlier in chapter 13, he's like a descendant of Eli, which of course those guys weren't great. I'm not sure if this guy, um, Ahijah, is really supposed to be in this position with Saul. We don't, I don't think we get a, a really clear uh, word from the author here one way or the other. It's not Samuel which, so I'm not sure. But anyways, he goes to get the guy that he has. He says, bring the Ark of God. And it basically sounds like the priest is in the middle of doing his thing. And Saul hears like, oh my goodness, it's getting even more raucous out there. They're becoming even more disorganized and more panicked. And I think he starts to feel the clock ticking like, oh no, I'm running out of time. So what he does is he's worried he's going to miss his chance. And he stops the priest in the middle of doing what he's supposed to do as a priest. More impatient, more disobedience, more him taking a role that is not his. And again, this isn't like he was called to be a baker and instead he's washing clothes. Okay, he's called to be a king and instead he is acting as a priest to God. All right, so I don't think we can let that be lost on us. How serious a presumption this is by Saul 
to say, I know I've been called to be the king, but I'm instead going to be the person who mediates between God and the people. That's a major, major disruption, a major misinterpretation of what God has called Saul to. And this is two times now he's done it. And both times he's getting impatient. He's getting scared. And so he's trying to kind of control. He's trying to control his situation by getting in the way of being obedient, basically. So they run into the battle. Uh, the Philistines are indeed confused. And apparently, this is a part that really surprised me. In verse 21, apparently part of the people who had scattered, that we talked about near the beginning, some of them apparently had gone to join the Philistines. Like they'd been like turncoats. And they went and joined the Philistines. I'm assuming they were given weapons, which in this moment was quite helpful for the Israelites as they had at least some people with weapons. And also they were probably dressed like the Philistines. So that probably gave them the element of surprise. But also it's like, what the, what are these guys doing? So anyways, they they decide, well, it looks like our guys are winning now. So we'll switch back. Um, and some Israelites who had been with the Philistines now are fighting back on the side of Israel. And I can imagine that only increased the confusion of the Philistines. And in fact, when it says every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, I can't help but think that it's almost maybe a direct result of the fact that some of the some of the people attacking each other were Israelites, and maybe they started to get suspicious of everybody. You know, hard to say. But at the same time, you can just imagine this. It's just absolute chaos in the Philistine camp. And so the Philistines are forced back into their territory. It's a great victory for Israel, even though Saul was disobedient. Okay, so the Lord still worked for them, even in the midst of Saul's disobedience. And then Saul, Saul, for really no reason, he tells people, "Uh, nobody eat anything before evening or else you're cursed. Why? Why? Why would he do that? It's not necessary. He wasn't upholding some edict of the Lord. This is just something he thought. Honestly, what I think he's doing here is he's trying to look pious before the Lord. Like, we're going to fast, even though they weren't called to fast in that time. So, of course, guess who didn't quite get the instructions? Who hadn't heard? Sees some honey on the ground. No, it's not Samson. Good guess. It's his son, Jonathan. So he's. it says he dips his staff and he takes some honey that he finds on the ground. It says that his eyes brightened. This isn't some weird mystical thing that's happening. I think it's like literally he just felt energized by it. And then someone's like, oh, did you not know that your dad said we weren't supposed to eat till evening? Ooh. And so, Jonathan, you can almost hear the sigh as you read it in verse 29. He says, my father has troubled the land. So this is actually the same kind of language that's used to describe Achan, um, the guy who takes some extra spoils from uh, from Jericho. That's the situation that is compared to. And you know what? Saul is actually going to really double down on this whole Achan comparison as we move farther into this. Hold on to that one. But anyway, Saul makes this rash vow. That's what it says in the ESV, the title of the section, Saul's rash vow. Um, Jonathan, who did not hear about it, finds out, makes this comment anyways. But then it has, there's more unintended consequences from, again, this 
this vow that Saul didn't need to make. So evening comes and the soldiers are so ravenous that they hurriedly prepare the meat and they eat it with the blood in it, which is a no-no. Okay, so they're not supposed to be doing that either. They're supposed to prepare it in a way that all the blood's able to drain from the meat. But honestly, Saul kind of set them up for failure because they were so starved after a day of fighting. And then he's like, no, you got to wait till evening to eat. So another kind of unintended consequence. All right, then they're having a little bit of trouble with Saul's trying to get God to tell him something and he's not hearing anything. And so Saul's like, I bet somebody broke my vow. And this is as we continue in chapter 14. And eventually they cast the lots and he finds out that it's Jonathan that ate something. And there, I think most of the Israelites are like, okay, well, it's his son. We're not going to worry about that. And he says, "Mm, okay, Jonathan, I hear that you ate a little bit of honey after the vow I made. Uh, You're surely going to die now. But the people actually refuse to give up Jonathan. Verse 45 says, then the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people actually kind of defy Saul and protect Jonathan. And I think part of it is they know Jonathan did a great thing for them and was faithful to the Lord. And then also I think they recognize that what Saul asked them to do was silly. Okay, so he makes this vow. He's kind of trying to do this overly spiritual thing to maybe make up for the mistakes he's been making. And it really just causes a lot of trouble for everybody, including his own son. Okay, so now as we move into chapter 15, we're going to see one more wonderful Saul incident. Samuel has some instructions for Saul. He says, hey, the Lord wants you to go attack the Amalekites and don't leave anyone alive. Don't don't leave any animals. Okay, it's like a it's kind of like what it was in Jericho. It's a complete like this is a judgment. This is a judgment of God through his people on the Amalekites. And so God gives them this victory over the Amalekites. He gets himself a nice uh, group of 200,000 men to go and do this. Okay, God gives them this victory. But verse 9 of chapter 15, but Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Oh, man. Saul, Saul, Saul. So the things that he didn't want, he was totally fine destroying. And the things he thought would be nice to keep, he keeps. Keeps prisoner, keeps the best animal. All animals, all of them. A lot of them. And so Samuel shows up and Saul says, Samuel, Samuel, guess what? I did exactly what I was supposed to. <laughs> and in verse 13, uh, oh, let's see, it's verse 14. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? So Samuel gets real sassy with Saul and is like, oh, you did exactly what you're supposed to do. I'm sorry. I believe I hear animals in the background. And so Saul kind of goes into deflect mode and he says, no, this, this is what I was doing. Uh, this isn't, no, I did what I was supposed to. Um, I've performed the commandment of the Lord. Um, 
no, I, you're wrong, Samuel. I did what I was supposed to. So then moving down to verse 20, this is what we see. Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. And again, this is after Samuel's already told him, no, you didn't do what you were supposed to. He says, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought back Agog, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So that's what Saul gives us his reasoning. This is why we did what we did, Samuel. Doesn't it make sense? See, we're going to devote it to the Lord. Samuel said, verse 22, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Samuel explains to Saul, this is the issue. Okay. You are not obeying the Lord. You are instead trying to just kind of win him over with sacrifices. Okay. And that's what he says. Obedient, obeying the voice of the Lord to obey is better than sacrifice. And so Saul is once again told he will be cut off from the kingship. Verse 23, when it says presumption is as iniquity and idolatry, this idea of presumption being taking on presuming what the Lord has for you instead of being obedient. So Saul has been trying to do this kind of religious deal on one side to make up for the fact that he's not obeying, that he's kind of following his own way. Okay. And so this is kind of the last several nails in the coffin for Saul. And he is not, he is no longer the Lord's chosen and instead, the Lord will seek someone after his own heart. Now, I think there are some really good points of application for us in this. There's actually quite a few. I had to kind of narrow it down. One, I think, is we see in Saul a person who was not patient and was not willing to wait on God's timing. He didn't wait for Samuel. He didn't wait for the priest. He wanted what he wanted, and he tried to do what he could to make it happen. He, took, he tried to be in control in a situation where he should have been surrendering to the Lord and being obedient. And I think that regardless of where we're at in our spiritual walk with God, we feel like we should have arrived at whatever it is we want to, su to succeed at. I know that I do. I feel like at my age, I'm 29 years old, I feel like I should have arrived. I shouldn't be having to deal with these Things. things should be well settled out for me. And I'm 29. What a ridiculous thought, right? But I think regardless of whether we're young or older, we are kind of looking forward to, well, this will happen and I will have arrived, whether that's in our spiritual walk, whether that's financially, whether that's in our careers. We have this idea that we know what we need and we're willing to try to take control to get what we know is right. We take that presumption for ourselves that we know what is best. We know better than God what the timing should be. 
And out of our impatience, we seek control. However, we are called to continually surrender our will and timing to God. We are called to, in whatever area of our life that we are struggling to feel like this is how it should be. I'm tired of waiting. I don't want to be patient. I'm going to make this happen. Whatever that is, we're called to surrender. To surrender our will, our control, the timing to what the Lord has for us. We're not called to work our circumstances just right. We're called to surrender and wait and be patient. To wait on the Lord and to know that his timing is truly the right timing. I was telling a friend this week something that my another one of my friends tell, has told me before that I repeat often. We never graduate past surrender in our spiritual lives. We never get to a point in our lives where we don't have to continually surrender, where we don't have to continually set aside our self-will and surrender to the Lord. So that's one. Second thing we see here that the Lord desires obedience over a religiosity or a false spirituality. Okay. Saul is our example in this. And he gets, he gets it directly like the cross. He's in the crosshairs of what Samuel is saying to obey is better than sacrifice. Okay. He makes this vow about the people not eating. He didn't need to do that. He's, he's saving the cattle, but it was for, for an offering. It was to offer it to the Lord. That's why I saved all the really good cattle. Okay. God doesn't want us to execute some spiritual checklist of our own design. He wants us to be obedient. He wants us to be obedient. I think we see this really obviously in the Pharisees, right? There were these things that they should have been obedient to, but instead they were busy making up new laws that they thought would get them where they wanted to go. And instead of being obedient to what God had already commanded, they put on this false sense of spirituality. We see here the Pharisees weren't the first ones. And unfortunately, they're not the last ones either. Because sometimes we may ignore or put off obedience to God in our lives for some quote unquote spiritual purpose. Well, you know, I'm, I'm just really starting, I'm still praying about um, how I should give or serve, or I'm still praying about how I should, you know, share the gospel. And it's been 10 years. Okay. But I'm still, I'm still praying about it. What God's called us to is to be generous, to serve the body, to share the gospel. That's what he's called us to. But sometimes we can say, well, I'm still praying. I'm still, you know, discerning. Or maybe I'm, I'm reading my Bible till I see a sign that I need to be reconciled. Like I'm just really waiting for the Lord to show me through scripture uh, what I need to do when I am, when I need to be reconciled to my brother or sister in Christ. We already know it's already in there. He's called us to be obedient. But sometimes we can take the quote unquote spiritual route rather than the obedient route. Or I'm doing X, Y, Z to avoid sin. I'm, I'm going to handle this myself. I'm going to work this just right. Um, everything's going to be fine. I don't think I need to confess I'm, because I'm doing X, Y, and Z and I'm not going to sin anymore. Well, what we've been called to is confession and confession brings that healing. Okay, so in Saul's life, we see this again. When we see it in our own lives where we are trying to take a, a route of sacrifice, so to speak, over obedience. What we've been called to is obedience. And the good thing is, if we are in Christ, 
we don't have to wonder how are we going to find a way to obey. Yeah, of course, we're going to continually fall short, but we have the Holy Spirit in us, working through us, helping us to remember what God has taught us and giving us the ability to obey. We have this great God who has chosen to dwell in us. We we don't have anything to excuse not obeying because we have the Holy Spirit. And even in the face of disobedience, instead of meeting it like Saul with a, let me rationalize this, let me try to uh, you know, clean this off so it looks okay. Instead, we can be honest. We can surrender those things. We can confess those things because we know they've already been taken care of. And when we act in obedience toward the Lord, we find that our timing, our control, our plans seem to lose their shimmer. They, they tend to look a little less attractive as we choose steps of obedience toward the Lord, because the more we choose steps of obedience, the more we are confirmed, wow, God's plan is better. Even when it's difficult, God's plan is better. And so as we've now are kind of closing the book on Saul and seeing his life, I hope that what this can be a reminder for us is that to obey and to follow the Lord and to follow his timing and his will is where we are going to find our joy. Not the ease, not everything's going to go the way we want it, but we're going to find joy in that because even when it's difficult, we know that we're being guided through the Holy Spirit into God's will, which is much better than anything we could ask or imagine. Thank you.